I love watching the kids together. Don't you get the impression that they thoroughly look forward to each Sunday to get to see their friends, right? That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Okay, if you have a Bible with you, if you have a Bible app on one of your devices, open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week I completed a nine-part series uh, titled The Powerless Place. It's so funny, when I began the first message I thought it was going to be a one-of and Boy, God had other things in store. And honestly, just week by week, just saying, okay, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do next? And as best as I'm able, follow his lead. And, and so it kind of um, blossomed into a, a nine-part series. You may not be aware of this, but there are people from all over the place uh, that listen to, to our Sunday sermons online, certainly across uh, North America and other places around the world. And I don't typically get much feedback from it. I know that people are listening. I can, I can check on the website that that's the case. But um, you don't typically get much feedback. This series, I've probably gotten more feedback on the Powerless Place than maybe any other series I, I've ever done. And, and my guess is that people can identify. Everybody's got something that they're battling or some struggle that they're dealing with. And it seemed like it... it God was in it, and he, it struck a nerve for, for a lot of people and wherever they are right now in their spiritual journeys. And so, Lord, all those people, as well as all of us, bless us and meet us in our powerless places and take us to where you want us to go. So this morning, I want to begin a new series of messages on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, this first message will serve basically as my introduction, and next week we'll, we'll dive into the uh, actual verses of, of chapter 1. But there's a, I have enough to say as an introduction uh, to, um, to cover a full message. Um, as I begin, I encourage you to please be listening to the Holy Spirit as I preach the sermon. When I'm done, I'm going to open it up and give an opportunity if anybody has words of knowledge. And we can uh, pray for those. Uh, we can receive those words of knowledge and then pray, pray for those people, okay? We've done that before. So just listen to me, listen to God, and we'll make space for that at the end of the message. All right, let's open up with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this book. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead us and have your way with us as we study your word. Amen? So these first two verses begin, Paul begins by introducing himself, Paul an apostle. Let me begin by this series, by introducing you to his letter. So some background. The letter's author is the Apostle Paul. It was written sometime around the early part of 60 AD, probably somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the Colossians, and Philemon were all written from prison at about the same time. Matter of fact, if you researched it, you'd discover that over half the verses in Ephesians, in this letter, are also found in Colossians. 
As I studied it, I'm left with the impression that Paul first developed the themes of this letter to the Ephesians while he was first writing his letter to the Colossians. Now, a few months back, we, we completed a whole series of message on, messages on Paul's letter to the Galatians. When Paul wrote to the Galatians and when he wrote to the Colossians, he wrote with this in mind. There were problems in those churches. And he was writing to them to address those problems. As, as the leader, as the apostle, as the founder, as a friend. He was addressing the problems in, in those churches. But not so with his letter to the Ephesians. I didn't want to do another, Galash, another Galatians where we just listened to another one of Paul's letters where he's telling them, you're wrong about this, you're wrong about this, you're wrong about this, and here's why, why, why. Ephesians is very different. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in comparison, like I said, is very different from many of the other New Testament letters he wrote. It's, if it's like anything else, I'd maybe put it in the same category as Romans, um, because both Romans and Ephesians were written not so much to address a particular problems in a church, Instead, it's been written to, to extol and to clearly communicate some of the, the great themes and doctrines of Christianity. And that's what we'll find in this letter. It's not entirely clear which imprisonment produced Paul's letters to the Ephesians, the Colossians, and Philemon. But most commentators seem to point to his imprisonment in Rome. So what we hear, the, the eloquence, the, the uh, profound truths that are going to be communicated to us as we go through this book, bear in mind, you know, Paul's not writing from the Holiday Inn Express after he's had their free breakfast, right? He's in prison. And these truths he's writing from a very difficult place. One of my commentators put it this way. It says, in this letter, Paul takes us to the very mountaintop of Christian truth, then invites us to take in the breathtaking view. Isn't that good? And when we do, we see that it is Jesus Christ who dominates that view. We see him breaking down the walls between God and humanity. We see him subduing the hostile, cosmic powers. And we see him creating the church. This is what's happening then. This is the context. God's using St. Paul in his missionary travels, all the different places he's taking him to... Paul is an exporter of freedom. He's an apostle of grace. And God's sending him all these different places to make, to establish and make deposits of grace and freedom. All, in the, all of it wrapped up in the knowledge of the great and extravagant love that God has for us. And he does that here. Here we see him. We see God creating the church. And the church as a new social order. The church is a new social order of love and unity that transcends racial, ethnic, and social distinctions between peoples. 
Who wants to be part of a group like that? I do. Who wouldn't want to be? I want to be part of a place where we love one another. Where no matter what happens, <laughs> that our default position would be this. And we love one another. And when we disagree, we love one another. Wouldn't that be good? Is that what church should be? If we get none of the other stuff right, wouldn't it be good if the church got that part right? And we just kind of love one another. We love the people we like. <laughs> we love the people we don't like. Anyway, in communicating this vision, Paul reaches into eternity past and eternity future to demonstrate how God, out of his great love and glory, calls people to be reconciled to himself and to one another and to one another and to one another through the cross of Christ. And on that cross, God provides for us forgiveness for sin, a brand new life, and a new people. Between Paul's reading and that we just read in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and in his salutation, the very final verses of chapter 6, verses 21 to 24, this letter is easily divided into two parts, and the two parts are doctrine and ethics. Part 1, chapters 1 to 3, focuses on doctrine, specifically the new life and new society God has created through Jesus. And in part 2, it focuses on ethics, specifically on the new standard of new relationships expected by believers. The second part on ethics focuses on new standards of new relationships expected by believers. I look forward to getting to that. Now, in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul focuses more on God's work in the individual Christian. Ephesians adds to that and includes the great themes of God's work in the community of believers, namely the church as well. There are, there are three main themes uh, in this letter, that God has reconciled all creation to himself and to God, that Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another in his church. And the final point is this, that Christians must live as new people. Let me say it another way. The purpose of this letter. Ephesians offers general instructions in the truths of God's redemptive work in Christ, the unity of the church among diverse people, and the proper conduct in the church, the home, and the world. God has a way that he expects us to treat one another. And we'll get to cover on some of that. The city of Ephesus. Ephesus was, was the most important city in Western Asia Minor. But we now know as Turkey. Ephesus was a harbor city. It was also at an intersection of major trade routes at the time. So this made Ephesus one of the great 
religious, political, and commercial centers of the time. The famous Temple of Diana, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, was built in Ephesus. That mighty structure that had taken more than 200 years to build. It was the center of Diana worship, the Roman goddess of the hunt and the moon. So Ephesus was a hotbed of cults and superstitions. Silver images of various sorts were, were made and sold in the marketplace. You can find references in Acts chapter 19. Magical arts were practiced. Hey, even the Jews erected a synagogue there. Spiritually speaking, there was a lot of stuff going on. And a lot of it not so good. But one day, something truly supernatural happened in this great seaport city. The gospel of Jesus Christ was demonstrated and proclaimed with power and authority in Ephesus. And a powerful blow was dealt to this pagan metropolis. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 12 give us a peek into just that. Let's take a look. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then, what baptism have you received? John's baptism, they replied. So Paul goes to Ephesus and he finds a whole bunch of Baptists. Okay? <laughs> they, they received the baptism of repentance. They haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's like, oh, I'm so glad I'm here. None of that's in the scripture. I just added that. Paul said John baptism was a baptism of repentance. And he told the people to believe in one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Paul went there, and he messed up their church, man, let me tell you. <laughs> if you go to a church that doesn't have tongues of prophecy, and tongues of prophecy shows up, you know what? Messes up that church. God bless Paul. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Verse 7. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Verse 9. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. This Christianity was called the way at that point. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. So you see what happens? I'll get back to verse 11 and 12. 
Paul's on one of his missionary journeys. He shows up in Ephesus. They had a measure of truth. God sent him there to give them the rest of the story. And for them, the rest of the story was this, the Holy Spirit. He has a conversation with them, prays for them. They speak in tongues after they've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they prophesy. And what happened? There were some people who loved it, and there were some people who became obstinate. And as a result of the obstinate people, Paul left. He took some of, his disciples, some of the disciples with him. But he stayed around for two more years, influencing the region and the culture. Verse 11 tells us that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that he touched, that touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Man, that's some serious power. Man, I love this. This is powerful stuff. I just love it. Paul made Ephesus a hub of power evangelism for about three years. And as a result, the church flourished for quite some time. And that's the good news. The bad news is that, unfortunately, later on, uh, the church of Ephesus had to receive a... They were issued a warning. And this is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. This is significant as well. Listen to this. The angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus right now this is Jesus speaking these are the words of him who holds seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands this is what he says to the church at Ephesus I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false you have persevered and you have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You have hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is, who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Which is in the paradise of God. I'm not going to unpack all that. You can have a sermon or two or ten just on those verses. That's not my point to do here today. My point is this, that great things happened in Ephesus and then somewhere along the line they ran into this error. They, forsake, they forsook their first love. The text tells us, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. What's he talking about? What's, what's this first love? This is God. It's the love for God. It sounds to me like the church at Ephesus we're really busy doing God things, doing stuff for God, doing stuff for people, but they forgot to, fall, to stay in love with God. 
the one they met at first. And personally, I'm concerned that this is the problem, in my humble opinion, the highest problem in the church around the world today. Not the Charlottetown Vineyard, not our church, small c, but the church. Is that we do stuff for God all the time. We do good stuff. We spend millions, we spend billions of dollars around the world doing stuff for God. And all too many people, they just don't know God. They've forsaken their first love. I know so many pastors over the years who have burnt out on ministry. And what happened, none of them got into the ministry for buildings or for budgets or for branding or for new product development. None of them got in it for that. They get into the ministry because they were in love with Jesus. He touched their heart. And something burned inside of them that they were like, I want other people to experience this and be in love with Jesus too, whatever their denomination is. But somewhere along the line, they became professionals. And there were expectations. And there was competition. And there were conferences and seminars and books you could buy on whatever topic. And it's easy. To become like Ephesus, it's easy. Now you become like Ephesus, you work really hard at becoming a successful church. That's the God's honest truth. And you do it at the expense of being madly and passionately in love with Jesus. That gets pushed aside. It's like the husband who's working two jobs and overtime to pay all the bills because he's a good husband and father, but he never spends time with his wife. And he can't remember the last time he spent time with his kids. But his 401k is stellar. <laughs> I'm concerned in the church today that good has become the enemy of best. That good works for God, good works for people have displaced love for God and intimacy with God. Information has displaced intimacy. And we're eating from the wrong tree. We're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when we should be eating from the tree of life. Listen to me. And you've heard me say this before, but if there was ever a time to repeat it. The primary purpose of the incarnation is not social justice. It's not saving the environment or the unborn. It's not to promote a conservative or a liberal political agenda. It's not signs and wonders. Hey, I like signs and wonders. That's not the primary purpose for the incarnation. It's not even ministry to the lost, the sick, and the poor. All good things. The primary purpose for the incarnation is the restoration of relationship between the Trinity and humanity. Between God and people. We capital C of the church, we need to return to our first love. And then from that place, having been loved by God, having experienced in practical, tangible, actual ways His love for us, then go love people. We, the church universal, have skipped the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And we've gone straight to the second. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. And we major in the second. Look at the programs. Look at the good works. Isn't any wonder that so many Christians, so many pastors, are burnt out on organized religion and leaving it? Because we never got into this for buildings and budgets, for branding and new product development. We got into this because we were in love with Jesus. He touched us. We were broken. We were lost. We needed salvation. We needed to be rescued. And he rescued us. And in those moments, we joyfully, gleefully gave him our heart. And the thought struck us that, hey, everybody should get some of this. That's why we got in. I'm convinced that the primary reason that the church exists is to help people fall madly and passionately in love with Jesus Christ. I've given my life to that end. And my hope <laughs> is that as we take a stroll through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, that it may stir some of that up in us. I don't want good to become the enemy of best. I'm not opposed to doing good things. Let's do good things. Let's do great things. But let's have our priorities in order. God comes first. Intimacy with him comes first. Somebody, an old pastor, told me years ago, he said, Tom, if you're too busy to spend time with God, you're too busy. Change something. I think he might have added the word son. Son, listen to me. He wasn't my dad. <laughs> But as an older man would do, son, listen to me. If you're too busy to spend some time with God, then you are just too busy. Change something, Tom. That was wise counsel then. It's wise counsel now. So I'm hoping, do I have energy for this? Do I have some passion for this? I'm really, I love the book. This Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I love this book. So many great portions in it. I'm personally, I'm excited to preach through it. I have energy for it. I'm hoping that as we take this, this journey that all of us will benefit. Let me uh, quote a few commentators uh, uh, that had glowing things to say about Paul's letter to the church uh, at Ephesus. F.F. F. Bruce, scholar, Bible commentator, he writes this. He says, The elevated themes of Ephesians make it highly praised and prized by commentators. Ephesians has been called the queen of the epistles, the quintessence of Paulinism, the divinest composition of man, even the Waterloo of commentators. Some say that Ephesians reads like a commentary on the Pauline letters, and probably it has been best termed the crown of Paulinism. Isn't that something? I think, I think Bruce is a big fan of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Stuart D.F. Salmond, professor of systematic theology and exegesis, adds this, Among the epistles bearing the name of St. Paul, there's none greater than this, nor any with a character more entirely all its own. There is a particular and sustained loftiness 
uh, in its teaching, which has deeply impressed the greatest minds and has earned for it the title of Epistle of the Ascension. Just one more. Charles Spurgeon, a man of very strong opinions, writes, The Epistle to the Ephesians is a complete body of divinity. In the first chapter, you have the doctrines of the gospel. In the next, you have the experience of the Christians. And before the epistle is finished, you have the precepts of the Christian faith. Whosoever would see Christianity in one treatise, let him read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the epistle to the Ephesians. With such high praise... <laughs> I thought we'd benefit from a deeper look into this powerful book. I encourage you. I mean, we're going to, you know me. It's going to take me a while to get through the whole book of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You have time. If you're looking, as this new fall season kicks off, if you're looking for something to dig into, what if you made, what if you parked at this letter yourself? And instead of reading it to study it, what if you read it to enjoy it? And just to meditate on it. And see what the Spirit of God would say to your spirit of its writings. So in the weeks to come, we'll touch on some powerful portions of the scripture. In chapter 1, Paul has a powerful prayer uh, for the church at Ephesus. A prayer that had a huge personal significance for me. in part of my spiritual journey. Something that impacted me and stays with me to this day. In chapter 2, we'll see a profound statement concerning salvation by grace. Unequivocal. Chapter 3, another very powerful prayer for the believers. In chapter 5, we cover nothing short of the fivefold ministry gifts of the apostle, the prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. I'll have much to say by the time we get to chapter 4. Chapter 5, we have Paul's instructions for Christian households. And in chapter 6, we'll cover the full armor of God, um, as well as many other things throughout those chapters. It, I think it promises to be a fun series. Now, I'm a pastor and a bit of a nerd, and this is what I live to do, so my definition of fun might be different than yours, but I'll make it as enjoyable for you as possible. I promise you I'm going to have fun going through it. Okay, let's pray. Oh God, I pray for us. I pray for the Charlottetown Vineyard, the, the slice of the church that we represent. Return us to our first love. Help us, oh God, to fall madly and passionately in love with you once again. May we be a church that loves you so much that we could not help but love one another. That your love would so radiate in us, on us, through us, O oh God, that our default position would be this, that we would love one another sacrificially. Let it be so. In the weeks ahead, as we dive into this book, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, give us eyes that see and ears to hear truly what 
the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. And Lord, through the study of your word and the truth that's in your word, transform us. Change hearts. Change minds. Lord, release the spirit of truth. And we know the truth. And that it would utterly and completely set us free. Transform us, O God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Now, I said um, in the beginning of my message that uh, at the end of the sermon, I would leave room for words of knowledge. Has anybody here today have a word of knowledge they'd like to share with the rest of the church?